small business and businesses that put purpose ahead of profit are part of the new story. Welcome to the Flywheel Podcast. This show is for entrepreneurs and creative free thinkers. Each week, we share ideas to help you build a better business that's more focused on building a life rather than just making money. I'm Victor Jimenez. To stay up to date on the latest shows, visit theflywheelpodcast.com where you can get notes on all the shows and sign up to receive updates. Welcome everyone. Welcome back to The Flywheel. So today we are talking about not-for-profits and growth in business. Hold on, hold on, wait a second. I know that a lot of you haven't signed up for that. But if you've listened to any of the other episodes here, you'll notice that you know we talk a lot about meaning and giving back and creating a sense of belonging for you and your employees. And one of the ways to address a lot of this might just be through forming a nonprofit. Now, I'll have to tell you up front that this this is a little bit of a of a mind shift for me personally, but it's something I've been thinking about for for quite some time. And I, you know, it just might be another way to think about structuring your business for you know, creating a sustainable uh, business for you, for your family, and for the planet. I hope that you'll listen to this episode very carefully. There, there's really a lot of good, uh, there's, there's a lot to be learned in this area. So my guest is Donnie McClurkin. He's a facilitator, author, and social entrepreneur. He's passionate about all things not-for-profit. He's originally from Australia. You'll notice that in his voice. He moved to the U.S. a a few years ago where he runs the Post Growth Institute. It's an international group exploring how we flourish with our economy having, without our economy having to constantly expand. As a consultant, he's helped more than 350 not-for-profit projects start, scale, and sustain their work. Well, his own initiatives include co-founding Free Money Day, the Post-Growth Alliance, the Enrich List, Cascades Hub, and Project Australia, an affiliate professor of social science at Southern Oregon University, a distinguished fellow of the UK Schumacher Institute for Sustainable Systems, an associate with the Australian-based Institute for Sustainable Futures, and a fellow at the Findhorn Foundation. Donnie holds a PhD in social, social science that explored how nanotechnology might impact global inequality. He is currently completing his third book titled How on Earth Our Future is Not for Profit. Donnie, welcome to the Flywheel Podcast. So happy you could make it. Thanks, Victor. Delighted to be uh, joining you and your audience. Donnie and I have, have been talking, uh, I think, probably about a year ago. I was sort of interested in, in what he is doing in his uh, philosophy on, on business. And it's a little bit different than what everybody's used to. And I think uh, 
it's going to challenge a lot of my listeners here, challenge a lot of people on, on, on their thoughts on what business is and, and what it can be. Donnie, can you explain a little bit about what the definition of post-growth, you're, you're, it's called the Post-Growth Institute. What the heck is that? What does post-growth mean? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and dive into that just a little bit to start. Absolutely. So I, I'm part of this institute that's been in action since 2010 that essentially looks at what would it be like to have an economy that operates within the Earth's uh, ecosystem and its limits. Essentially, how do you create economic flourishing in a way that's respectful of the limitations that nature puts on us? And that essentially comes back to the notion that we're living beyond limits at the moment. There was a seminal study that came out in the 70s that was done by uh, MIT researchers that looked at the amount of resource consumption and resource throughput that was required for the economy at the time, and it modeled what that resource throughput would be like on various tracks, mm -hmm. uh, various different scenarios. And what they found was that the middle track, essentially the one that mapped the most likely path forward, would lead to full ecosystems collapse by 2050. Now, at the time, that report, the Limits to Growth report, copped quite a lot of flack from, from various quarters, especially corporate fields. Mm -hmm. uh, others celebrated it as, as something that was really insightful. But what's most amazing is that Graham Turner from uh, uh, Melbourne University back in, I think it was 2012, did a study that reviewed the, the data that was assembled in 1972 and essentially updated that data and found that, in fact, we were tracking almost uh, – perfectly according to that middle path, essentially reinforcing this notion that, that we're on a, a trajectory towards full systems uh, collapse by 2050. And we're starting to see some of those impacts. I mean, just in the last few weeks, some of the weather that, uh, patterns that I've been seeing mm -hmm. in Australia and, and the US here, I mean, there's a lot of talk obviously about uh, human-induced climate change, um, different perspectives that fall on a spectrum uh, in regards to that issue. But I think it's undeniable that we're seeing changes in weather patterns. We're seeing species loss uh, at a, a rapid, an increasingly rapid rate. Uh, in, in fact, the United Nations Millennium, uh, Millennial uh, Assessment on Ecosystems said this. It said that all of the biodiversity loss uh, was happening across every field of biodiversity and it was happening at an increasing rate. So when you have this climate uh, climate challenge, when you have mm -hmm. this environmental challenge that in fact goes well beyond climate change, you need to ask yourself, how do we have an economy, given the economy is linked uh, to that environmental uh, change, those environmental changes in the way that we <clears throat> create all, all of these what's called externalities by the way that we manufacture and consume? How do you create an economy that works in a way that doesn't destroy the environment on which we rely. And this is a really important point, that last bit about relying on the environment, because typical economic models uh, and the neoclassical approach to economics that underpins all of the way we do business right now does not include the environment as a fundamental resource in that consideration. 
It talks about markets. It talks about the firm, you know, corporations, etc., mm -hmm. trade, uh, invisible hands, all of these sorts of aspects as if we don't rely on the environment um, at the, as the fundamental provider of resources and uh, to ameliorate the wastes that we create through, through our right. production processes. So when you consider the environment as the starting point of an economy and that the economy is a subset of the environment, you then have to have an economic model that mirrors that. And we don't. We don't have uh, an ecological economics at the center of our economy uh, or our economic models. And that's why we have politicians, corporate leaders, activists, etc., coming together and butting heads essentially around how do you run an economy uh, within an earth, within an earth ecosystem. And post, the Post Growth Institute really tries to step up and address that question and say, how do we thrive within ecological limits? Mm -hmm. um, given, and, and this is a crucial point here, given we haven't found a way to what's called relatively, uh, sorry, absolutely decouple uh, economic growth from environmental degradation. And what that means is we haven't found a way to disconnect those two. In other words, if you increase your gross domestic product, the amount of trade that happens within an economy at the moment, mm -hmm. you increase on average the amount of environmental impact that you're having. Given we haven't found a way to separate those two trends so that you could have increasing GDP and decreasing environmental impact, we need to think about a system which is beyond a growth model, one that isn't constantly expanding. We're not constantly looking for what's the latest increase in a country's GDP, how much is a business growing. Uh, how, ma how many more people are we bringing into the planet? So post-growth uh, as a concept and the Post-Growth Institute address that very question. How do we exist? How do we thrive within ecological limits? Hmm. Really, really fascinating. So isn't so some of this, I, I think part of the argument for this might be, well, technology might help us uh, achieve that, you know, with newer technologies coming, coming on board might help us figure out and we can have the growth and have the, the sustainability of the environment and stuff at, at the same time. Is, is that, uh, a it's, it's a great point that that's very commonly thought and it comes back to that notion of decoupling. So <clears throat> yes, the notion is that the environmental efficiencies that we we mm -hmm. see added in, especially with sort of X factor technologies. You know, when couldn't there be a big breakthrough that allows us to essentially um, massively reduce, perhaps even to zero, the costs of energy? Um, and and in reality, we haven't seen any evidence to suggest that that can happen. And I, and I say that coming from a perspective that looked through my PhD research at the the latest trends in nanotechnology. Um, engineering at the level of atoms um, mm -hmm. and small molecules, um, which is really the cutting edge uh, intersection of science uh, in terms of biology, chemistry, physics. And I didn't see anything around the world that suggested that that breakthrough was right around the corner. And that's been backed up by other people, Tim Jackson's work, where he looked at the actual rate of innovation uh, that's happening in the last few decades and said that in order to ensure that we kept our um, climate change to under two degrees of warming, according to the UN requirements right. in terms of 
uh, parts per million uh, associated with that, that we would need to be innovating, I think it was 13 or 16 times faster than we've been innovating in the past few decades. And the key thing to, for your readers to consider here is what's called the rebound effect. Because it's not to say that there isn't, there haven't been incredible innovation gains that have reduced the energy intensity of various activities. They have. Mm -hmm. The problem is twofold. Firstly, we have an expanding population. Even though the rate of population growth is decreasing, we still have po our population increasing overall. And that population is increasing, even if you have a rate decreasing, uh, it takes you back to sort of maybe grade 10 mathematics and right. derivative functions and the like. Even if you have a rate decreasing, if the if it's compounding, um, if every year there's a bigger number on which the percentage um, is, is uh, growing, the challenge is that that's an exponential curve. So you have a population that's expanding, and every time you add another individual uh, in this world, and it depends where they're born in terms of their average footprint, mm -hmm. but wherever you, where, whenever you have a, a system in which the extra people get added, you have an increase in the resource requirements. Just a, something we can all understand. You then add in this other thing, which is called the rebound effect. So you you probably remember well, Victor, the those notions of the paperless office. Uh, yeah, that got thrown out, <laughs> you know, yeah. or uh, or the notion that um, with energy efficiency measures like adding a uh, an energy efficient shower head to your shower, that you were going to lighten your impact on the planet, or that uh, the the Prius car or, or uh, similar cars, you know, electric vehicles uh, were really the, the hope for uh, decoupling. Mm -hmm. the uh, the energy intensity from the environmental impact. Well, the problem is that the data shows pretty much any time we see an energy efficiency gain in a field, it's outpaced by the overall increases in the consumption of that activity. So you have paperless office um, notions that move to electronic forms of, of communication, and essentially we just end up sending more communications. We have an energy efficient water shower head, uh, uh, head for your shower. You Take end up long, staying in the shower longer. longer showers. You drive the, <laughs> you drive the <laughs> electric vehicle, you drive further. Constantly, hmm. and then when you add in the population growth, you can see how consumption constantly outstrips, the increases in consumption constantly outstrip in a growth-based system, the efficiency gains that can be made simultaneously. So it's not to say that technology doesn't play a really important uh, role in mm -hmm. transitioning to a thriving future. It's just that if we put our eggs and hope into that basket, it's denying a fundamental principle that exists at the heart of, of the growth economy. Um, and we can maybe go into that a little more in terms of how there's an imperative for debt to constantly expand in our current system. Right. And whenever you have debt expanding, you have consum associated consumption pressures. Of course. Um, and, and we feel this. We, yeah. we know yeah. that every, the pressures on us are to consume more and more and more. And when the economy is not going well in terms of that measure, the government, business, etc., are asking us, consume for the country for the sake of the economy. <laughs> <laughs> it becomes madness when you, when you look around at the impacts and you understand the embodied energy that sits within most uh, most 
products. I mean, just one thing I wanted to share with your listeners is, and, and it's been a little while since I looked at the statistic, but I think it's somewhere around 60% of the energy that goes, that's used in the entire life cycle of your car. So if you think about your car that you, you purchased, uh, let's say you purchased it new or even if you purchase it secondhand. Yep. And let's say it gets, let's say it's a really great car and it gets 400,000 miles in its lifetime. And you think about all of the fuel that was used um, in those 400,000 miles, a lot of fuel, right? Yeah, yeah. Would you believe that it's still less than half of the overall energy costs to the environment that's associated with those 400,000 miles, that the vast majority of energy required by the whole use of that car from its very first creation to its scrapping at the end, let's say, the yep. majority still exists before you it even comes off the parking lot. Wow. Yeah, I think I've read this some someplace before. I, I re, re, vaguely re, re, recall this. Um, right. Wow. So, so, so this is starting to, to really get me down here, <laughs> 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 listening to this, Donnie. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. And I, uh, what you're saying makes absolute perfect sense to me. Um, so, so where does our, where do small businesses and entrepreneurs, where do they have their place in this? Well, there's such exciting opportunity here because there's a, there's a chance I think for the first time in modern history for small businesses and businesses more generally to look at their power in creating and driving a new story of what an economy thriving and within limits would look like. And it essentially comes down to that growth story and the notion of profit maximization, which sits under the for-profit economy. So I'm going to make a distinction here between the kind of economy we have and the kind of economy that I think is emerging and also offers us real hopes. Okay. And the, the kind of economy we have at the moment is what I would call the for-profit economy. And the for-profit economy is one that I would see as having two characteristics. It's businesses that are privately owned and essentially have as their mandate profit maximization. And the second characteristic is the overall system resembles that, is that the economy is made up of, of the notion of private uh, gain mm -hmm. at its heart and that that, that should be the ultimate goal uh, within, uh, within that system, uh, that it really is about maximizing individual gain with the notion that if you do that, a la Adam Smith's trickle-down um, invisible hand model, uh, sorry, not trickle-down, the invisible hand, that everyone will gain if you focus on your, on your, um, your own individual uh, outcomes. Mm -hmm. Now, the reality is, and, and I'm guessing you see this as do your listeners in, in the small business field, there has been a strong shift, and in fact, it has sat underneath the majority of small businesses when you look at the studies on what drives small business ownership. It is not profit maximization. It's fulfilling some kind of purpose. Purpose is very central and it's making a good living. And you'll see that most in the studies that I've looked at that are not only from the US but also from the UK, the majority of small business owners aren't looking to make millions and millions of dollars because they know that there's a trade-off there in terms of their quality of life. Right. What they're generally looking to do is make a good living, 
have enough money put aside for, um, for retirement, ensure that they can have a, a decent quality of life for their families and themselves, and to do something entrepreneurial or something that adds value to a community. It's about creating value and in, and in doing so, uh, creating a livelihood. And that is a really crucial point because before our corporate model of um, the, the large listed corporation, so a few hundred years back, before that existed, that's how community businesses ran. That's how the majority of businesses ran. That's how Main Street existed. It was small businesses that worked <laughs> together in a community to resource that community. Now, this isn't to say that the advances that we've had and uh, in the development of the global market haven't been really beneficial. They've led to a whole lot of uh, breakthroughs in science, agriculture, health, etc. And opening up of markets around the world mean that small businesses can essentially reach others in the world um, right. that, that, that relate to their service offerings. But what's, what have we lost in the process? Well, we've had this hollowing out effect where small communities and even larger communities um, in terms of uh, certain populations within those communities have lost out. They, we've seen uh, the middle class collapse um, and we're seeing people continuously struggle around the world. Small business and businesses that put purpose ahead of profit are part of the new story because they reflect a different ethos an ethos that sits under this second kind of system. I mentioned the for-profit system is one that we live in at the moment. Mm -hmm. The system where uh, the way we describe the alternative is the not-for-profit system. Now, to most people who are business-minded and small business owners and the like, they, they hear the words not-for-profit and it usually… We cringe. <laughs> yeah, cringe, cringe. And, and maybe share a little what is it that makes you cringe about that, Victor, because that's that's worth unpacking. Well, I… I think there is a lot of us think small business owners, individual business owners, let's put it that way. Um, we, we, we feel that, you know, we, we invest a lot of ourselves and we make a living. And then at some point, maybe we have, have this thing that we built and we can transfer it in exchange for, for cash possibly or something else and, and we can do something else with our money so it's sort of a, a individual wealth creation thing that mm -hmm. i think a lot of entrepreneurs that's what they're out for all those things that you talked about you know creating meaning and and delivering value to to your community whatever that community is is uh absolutely key and i i'm speaking from our listeners here i i know that a lot of people are like yeah but one of my things of creating my business is at some point i want to be able to leave a a legacy for my children uh, you know so they have money to go to college and and uh buy a house or or whatever um right so i think there's a lot of assumptions uh, that are worth unpacking there um I'm working out which one to start with first. I think the, the first thing is to is to really question this notion of enough, because I hear exactly what you're saying. Uh, I think it, it makes a lot of sense. You want to have enough so that you can provide for your family, your retirement, uh, and ensure that the the quality of life for any offspring you have, um, any children that you have, or nieces, nephew, etc., um, is is enough essentially, to ensure that they can make it. 
And what I'm here to share today is that that can totally happen under a not-for-profit structure. Um, and, and I think there's also an important assumption that maybe we'll have a chance to explore, which is around the notion of, of um, inheritance and the timing of that uh, in our economy and when that makes most sense. So let's see if we, if we get back to that in, in our conversation. Right. The, coming to just this notion of not-for-profit, when I talk to, to most individuals uh, across many different countries, when I mention those words not-for-profit, they think of a model or they think of um, a situation that involves charity. Yeah. They're thinking of organizations like Red Cross, Cancer, um, Cancer Council, whatever it is, something that essentially relies on charity. Now, something amazing has happened uh, over the last 30 years that even people in the so-called not-for-profit sector haven't spoken about much uh, themselves. And so the public doesn't know what I'm about to share. And that is that the majority of not-for-profit income, so think about all of the organizations you're aware of, right. the majority of income in the past used to be charity. People would uh, would receive money from grants. They would have donations from big philanthropists through to small grassroots campaigns that raised money. But over those last 30 years, not-for-profit managers, so the CEOs as well as the boards that oversaw the management, got tired of constantly having their funding pulled out from underneath them if there was a change in the political atmosphere or if the economy tanked uh, and philanthropy dried up. And so they decided to do something very powerful. They decided to get into business. And you wouldn't know this often because not-for-profits uh, will often own a for-profit company that will appear like, a, like an everyday business. So you take Mozilla Firefox, the, mm -hmm. the internet browser, right? It's owned by the, solely by the Mozilla Foundation. So if you went on to Mozilla, um, sometimes they mention the nonprofit stuff, but you, you might just be using that and go, oh, it's a good browser. It's a for-profit company that's a subsidiary of a nonprofit that allows the Mozilla Foundation to do its work in providing grants for individuals interested in an open web. Mm -hmm. uh, the Greystone Bakery is another one. If you're from the East Coast uh, and you've, you've been to New York, um, it's another not-for-profit, uh, another for-profit benefit corporation that's owned solely by a, a not-for-profit foundation. Mm. And and so you have these initiatives that exist that you wouldn't realize are owned by not-for-profits, and then within existing non-profit, traditional non-profit organizations, you see a lot more fee-based services uh, that have been added in to their existing social service programs. And this cuts across every country around the world. Um, it cuts across um, all different fields. Not-for-profits are now in manufacturing, they're in IT, they're in healthcare, they're in education, the traditional fields, but they're also in real estate, they're in uh, banking, all different kinds of wow. fields. <laughs> and when you add in one other ingredient, which is that when we think of not-for-profit, we typically think of that non-profit, like the 501c3 here in the right. US yeah, or exactly. a charity elsewhere. If you think of the definition of not-for-profit as any business that, maxim that focuses on maximizing purpose, like social outcomes, and being without private ownership, you realize that you can add credit unions, mutual insurance companies, um, government corporations, industrial foundations, there are all of these models 
that are actually not-for-profit. Now, what this means is, and this is where we need to zoom back out a little to come back to this notion of there being enough um, and, and the entrepreneurial notion that you start up uh, a small business thinking that at the end of the day, there's going to be a payout for all of the time and energy you've invested. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the zoom out picture says, how do we have payouts in this economy? Well, in order to, to have like a nest egg to be retiring on or inheritance, you need to have certain amount of money in an economic system that says, okay, you sell this business at the end of the day and you have half a million dollars in your bank account. Mm-hmm. But herein lies the problem that very few economists and very few uh, individuals worldwide want to talk about. There is a limit to the amount of money that can exist in the economy uh, at any one point. And that limit relates to the capacity of the economy to take on debt. So just uh, stepping back one step further, and then we'll come back in. Okay, this, yeah, this yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's floating around out there. Keep going. Right. So when you, uh, whenever, whenever you have money uh, in an economy, that money is always matched by an equivalent amount of debt, and often more. And that's because the majority of money in our system is introduced through banks, as debt. Mm -hmm. So when you go and take out a loan for your house, for example, or a loan for your small business, the bank says, here you go, we'll put uh, that money, you know, $200,000 into your account and we'll match that asset with a liability, that liability with an asset that the bank holds, which is the $200,000 loan that you Mm -hmm. owe the bank plus the interest. So think of that in terms of every dollar in the economy is matched by at least another dollar of debt in the system. Okay. If you pay down that debt, uh, it cancels out that money in the system and shrinks the economy. The reason why our economy is growing is because whenever you have the levels of inequality we have today, where uh, 60 or so individuals have the same amount of wealth as the bottom half of the entire planet, three and a half billion people, Whenever you have that economic disparity, what it means is that if you have money cent- uh, accumulated and centralized with a few individuals, you have to have a huge amount of debt um, held by all of the other people in the economy. Mm, okay. It's, what, it's yep. what we see, this big split between asset accumulation and debt deflation, which is an, a bigger conversation. The point of all this is that whenever you have that level of inequality in an economy, You don't have the ability for your everyday businesses, your small businesses, um, your everyday individual to pay down their debts. It's impossible because there's not enough money circulating in our common economy in order to do that because that money is accumulated elsewhere amongst a few individuals. This isn't some kind of conspiracy theory. This is exactly what is driving the politics in the USA in Europe, elsewhere around the world, is there's not enough money in the common economy for us to pay down our debts. That's why we're having to take out more credit cards, more loans. It's it's a real struggle for so many people. Now, coming back in from that zoomed out picture, yep. if you have businesses where you're talking about your nest egg at the end of the day being something that you want a half a million dollar payout, etc., you're participating in a system, unfortunately, that is rigged towards those, how do we put it, 
those few individuals who've got the money, if you take another half a million dollars out of that economy, uh, out, yeah. of, out of the economy, someone else like your your niece, your nephew, etc., um, or if they're not getting the inheritance, someone, your, your friend who's a small business owner, they are going to have to take out debt themselves because, again, there's not enough liquidity in the economy. Understand. Where this all comes to is we need an economy that recirculates wealth rather than accumulating it. And to have an economy that circulates, just like every flow-based system requires circulation, our body, the environment, etc., our economy needs circulation in order for it to breathe. The way we do that is together we create an economy that puts money back in rather than constantly extracting it out so that certain people get very rich and others don't. And the principle that sits underneath that is that notion of enough. What mm -hmm. is enough for me in order to thrive? And when does money go back in? Because we know that the more it's the, it's the principle of a, of a local economy. Whenever you see businesses owned locally in a town, as compared to owned by multinationals that take wealth out, we see that economy thrive so much more. Why? Mm -hmm. Because the money is circulating in the economy, which means it, it's not that you lose that money. Uh, let's say you're a small business owner and you, you put more money back into your economy through philanthropy, whatever it is. Sure. That money comes back around to your business and helps grow your business even more. Yeah, it elevates this, every, everyone. It in elevates the everyone. It comes back to that very notion that capitalism was supposed to be, which was that everyone gains um, by, by looking out for their own interests. But the reality is that such a system of self-interest ultimately leads to the situation we're in today because certain businesses, certain people get greedy, they scale up. We have corporate capitalism where shareholders that have no actual interest um, None, yeah. or necessarily activity input into a company end up skimming money uh, off the top of activities where the workers elsewhere are, are working super hard and, and wages uh, continue to have downward pressure. So this is that long, very, very long answer to your question of um, what about entrepreneurs that want to have that payday? My point here is you can actually set up your business as a not-for-profit business that will pay you an even better wage, I would argue, looking at the data, um, because you can essentially run as a leaner operation with lower costs, um, whether it comes from taxation reductions or costs of uh, purchasing that are reduced for not-for-profit businesses through to the ability to engage volunteers, to put out there marketing-wise that you're a not-for-profit business. Hmm. Exactly what credit unions do. They say we're not-for-profit banking institutions. And they constantly outcompete, especially at the local level, uh, the for-profit equivalent That's banks, true. Yeah. because they can say, we put all our profits back into our economy. Now, if you were to start up a new credit union uh, today and you became the CEO, I would argue that you're going to have plenty of money for retirement. You're going to have plenty of money to save uh, along the way to put your kids through college. There's many, many examples of not-for-profit businesses where the wages are really good, the benefits are great, and there's the concept of enough that is built into that business itself because there's no private shareholder of the company. There's no capacity for someone to make $20 million right. out of a not-for-profit because there's no equity built in. 
but it still has not-for-profit business at its heart. It's not a charity-based organization. Right. What you're talking about, I love love all this, and and it sounds similar. I want to maybe jump into some other uh, things on that. But, But first, this is a cultural mindset shift for for a lot of my listeners here and, and and all of us really it's a cultural it's the opposite of pretty much everything about our, our culture maybe maybe in a very small community it's not that hard to see but in a, in a larger community um the idea of you know hey i'm gonna cash out and go sit on a beach uh a lot of people have this mindset and it's shoved down our throats basically you know this that mindset of uh, I'm going to start a business, and and in 20 years or 30 years, I'm going to cash it out. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, that's what I, where I see a, a big challenge of the, you know, the, it, the major mindset shift of a of a whole globally, really. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think there's a real opportunity here because the first step I would say that, that people are taking is looking at the data and going, hold on a second. That notion that I've been fed that I'm going to be able to cash out and go sit on the beach, what really is the likelihood of that happening? Um, we're seeing the American <laughs> dream fail. Yeah, uh, It's fading as we speak. Now, baby boomers maybe are going to be able to push through uh, and, and catch the tail end of that, of that dream fading. But for the millennials, uh, you see a lot more individuals asking these questions around the world now saying, hold on, this dream doesn't add up with the reality of what I see in terms of the trends and the data. Uh, I see people working longer, um, having to work longer. Uh, you know, if I'm in the US, uh, my friends are talking about the viability of social security moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, is there really going to be that money there as the uh, the safety net? Um, we see the questions around uh, <clears throat> the cost of healthcare as you get older. Um, and you know whether Medicaid uh, again here in the U.S. is going to is going to be there for people, and even in terms of this is a big one, um, those who who had investments during the 2008 crash. I mean, how quickly I think it was a real wake up call for a lot of people when they saw their retirement savings cut, you know, 30, 40 percent, um, sometimes more overnight, and and foreclosures just hitting such a high level. Sure. So many people are saying, hold on. This we've maybe been sold something here that doesn't quite add up with the reality, and they're right. And it comes back to that impossibility theorem. You can't have a system of accumulating wealth and expect that there's going to be enough liquidity in our own system for us to not have to go into further debt. The system requires the average individual to take on more and more debt. So that means less and less people can cash out. Mm. Yeah, and it, it, it taps in what you're talking about. It, it does tap into this basic human need for for uh, meaning and value, meaning finding meaning and uh, and values, and uh, actually using that to drive our our business. And by being able to help a community, any given community, through your your business. Uh, for a lot of people, that that gives them meaning, gives them a sense of meaning and purpose, more so uh, maybe in this than in a profit for-profit business where I'm taking that cash and I'm just going to sit on the beach at <laughs> someplace. 
Yeah, and I think the interesting thing here, and we're starting to see this with with B Corp certification and and benefit corporations and notions of shared value, is that even within the business community, there's there's a shift that's happening mm-hmm. around conversations in terms of social value, social impact, and purpose driven business. What I would say is that there's no better opportunity to uh, to run your business with its with a purpose motivation than the not for profit form because legally you have to put purpose first it goes one step further than a benefit corporation where your purpose and your uh, shareholder value are given equal um, equal sitting what i would say is whenever you come down to a question where you're like well i could make a million dollars for my shareholders or i could reduce a million dollars worth of damage for the environment which avenue are you going to take? I, I suspect that you're still going to succumb um, to to the former. So, mm-hmm. you know, there there's an opportunity here for people, and this is this is relevant. I should say uh, the not-for-profit uh, form of business is relevant to listeners who are looking to scale up their small business. It's it's not it doesn't make so much sense for small businesses with say under hundred thousand dollars turnover each year. Mm-hmm. This is for people who are maybe looking to take an LLC through to uh, some kind of um, larger incorporated form. And that's where it makes sense to have a board that can help you, you know, run your local uh, supermarket or your local IT store, et cetera, um, as a not-for-profit business. Um, we see great examples of this, just to give your listeners some, some further uh, ideas. You know, Goodwill, for example, um, you know, local clothing uh, and an item recycling store that's now moved into the e-commerce field uh, and now has an online trading um, system like eBay uh, that's doing the same sort of thing, but it's doing it on a local basis. So selling locally, but trading globally as a not-for-profit. So Mm -hmm. there's no limit actually we found to the scope of small businesses that if they were looking to scale um, could shift to not-for-profit and actually look at, and this is a crucial point, if you're thinking about handing your business on to your children, which it's a it's a decreasing trend these days, but let's mm-hmm. say that was something of interest to you, we would argue that this the most solid opportunity in terms of the ongoing viability of an organization is actually for it to be a not-for-profit and for your kids to potentially then come through into a senior management role or, or the CEO role of that at a good wage um, because not-for-profit creates resilience in ways that for-profit businesses struggle to to create. Hmm. So, would would you consider a a cooperative, uh, a a, uh, a not-for-profit? I'm 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 a member. My wife actually works for a, a pretty large uh, food cooperative uh, grocery store here, and. Hmm. Uh, you know we're yeah, we're we're owners and I, and I think you know that we're she's a worker owner I'm a, I'm just an owner I buy in you know I had to buy into it and we get a dividend every year and uh, right. yeah w- would you consider that Great a co- uh, not for profit so it depends what kind of cooperative it is what you're describing to me sounds like a multi stakeholder consumer cooperative um, in which case it is a not for profit. The worker ownership, I'm guessing, is actually nominal, um, as in they don't own the corporation in terms of having equity, but they have a say in like some kind of council where they get to feed in. I could mm-hmm. be wrong on that, but that's my guess. And this is a really important thing to unpack. When you get a dividend, it's not a dividend in the sense of like a shareholder dividend. Um, so for those of you listeners who are part of a, a local uh, con- a food co-op, for example, or REI or, or uh, something like that, 
a clothing cooperative. What you essentially are getting at the end uh, isn't like a shareholder dividend where you've got $1,000 worth of stocks and they give out a dividend of, of 3% and so you get your $30. What you get is a dividend based on a percentage of how much food, uh, sorry, what you purchased at the cooperative. So essentially, it's just a refund. It's basically hmm. the cooperative saying, hey, we exist for our members. We're not existing to make a profit. So any profits we have at the end of the year, we're going to choose how much we set aside for capital development so that we can continue to uh, provide better services and potentially grow to address uh, a growing need in terms of the membership. And the rest of it, we'll just give back as a refund to basically say, hey, we overcharged you. Mm -hmm. um, so my guess is that your dividend is probably very small each year because most co-ops operate close to cost. Um, but that's what that is. So yes, that that what you're describing is a not-for-profit form of business um, that often the co-ops themselves don't even realize they are they're operating in that way. Hmm. Yeah, and and in that sense, uh, it's easy for me to relate because I'm involved with it, and uh, it really does build a sense of community uh, that everybody at least feels like they're an owner and uh, and they really do. Uh, they're very passionate about the business. Let's put it that way. You're, you're the, the, the customers are, I mean, and the employees and, too. Right. And there was a study that was done that compared all consumer cooperatives. So these not-for-profit forms of, of um, local food uh, purchasing mm -hmm. compa and, and compared them to for-profit uh, equivalents in the U.S. So your typical um, grocery store or supermarket in the U.S. What they found was hands down. The cooperative, the consumer cooperative, outperformed on the wages um, that it paid, the benefits, the environmental impacts were considerably lower. They sourced their food and, and produce locally, um, and they they had a range of social and ethical outcomes. The philanthropy that they provided for local businesses was higher. All of these sorts of things. So the point is this. The more we shift, and, and this is a shift that's been happening, I should add, uh, for your listeners, this notion of shifting towards businesses that put purpose uh, ahead of profit and, and have uh, are without private ownership, that has been increasing um, over the last 30, 40 years in ways that haven't been uh, very doc uh, heavily documented. So it's been dramatic uh, and undocumented, uh, largely undocumented. The exciting thing behind that is that the more those organizations do what they're doing and the more people get to experience what it's like to be part of a not-for-profit business and the more they connect that with the notion of a system that circulates wealth rather than trying to extract it by un invisible shareholders or private family uh, owners that, that maybe have no interest in a community, the more we'll see this is a path to success for us all. This makes sense. Let's all recycle our wealth, have enough for each other, and do what the market does best, which is to provide a mechanism for trade that works out the pricing such that it allows for us all to work out what works for us. I love this. So in in the end, this this just seems, you know, it's, it's very simple. And it's not that different than a lot of socially conscious uh, businesses that are already 
sort of heading in that direction. We're already sort of doing that. And I I love this. It's been a great uh, conversation. So, uh, Donnie, do you have any any other closing thoughts here? I mean, you you did a pretty good job. You summed it up there. But do you have anything else to to close this up? I think uh, it's worth – I'll tell a little story to to finish up because it gets to the heart of, of what we've been discussing. There was the, the U.S. author of, of the book Catch-22, Joseph Heller. He was at a, a party that was held by a friend of his who was a very, very wealthy billionaire um, out on Skelter Island uh, back last century. And uh, Joseph's friend Kurt Vonnegut was there with him and they were, they were standing around talking and Kurt turns to Joseph and said, Hey, Joe, don't you feel a little depressed being here at this party? Um, and Joe said, Why? What do you mean? And Kurt said, well, because this friend of ours, this billionaire, he, he probably earns more in a day than your book is going to earn in its entire lifetime. And Joe turned to Kurt and said, no, it doesn't bother me. And Kurt looked at him perplexed and said, well, why not? And Joe said, well, I've got something that he will never have. What's that, Kurt said? Enough. And that is at the heart of and economics that's going to work for us all is to say there's real value in being content in our lives mm-hmm. and creating that contentment in our local economies and uh, and to think about what contentment means. What is enough for you and your small business? Because then everything extra can be put back into a community. Um, it can be philanthropy. It can be money you invest into creating the legacy through your project. We have a book that's coming out uh, this year on this topic, and your listeners can find out more at howonearth.us. And you can also check out our work, uh, the Post Growth Institute at postgrowth.org, and we're also on Facebook and Twitter at Post Growth Institute. Well, Donnie, thank you so much. This has really been fantastic. I love that that little story. Um, And yeah, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Delighted to be here with you, your listeners and yourself today. Thanks, Victor. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Flywheel Podcast. It was a lot of fun. Make sure that you head over to theflywheelpodcast.com. Go ahead and sign up to receive updates. And send me an email. I would love to hear from you. I'd love to hear what you think of this episode, any ideas for future episodes, and just to have a conversation. So that's theflywheelpodcast.com. Also, if you like this episode, I would really appreciate it if you head over to iTunes and leave me a review there. It really helps me grow the show and find uh, new listeners. So you just go over into iTunes, you put in the Flywheel Podcast, it should pop up there, uh, and just go ahead and leave a review. Thank you so much. Bye.